second panel entitled um, Entitled Histories. Um, and we have two speakers, um, Shane Boyle from um, Queen Mary University of London and uh, Molly Flynn um, from our own um, Department of Education and Management. Um, so, yeah, without any further ado, I'll just pass over to Shane. To okay, discuss. cool. Thank you all very much. Um, so, first off, apologies. I literally just showed up because I was teaching. Um, and so, yeah, um, apologies for missing the conversation so far. It was really nice to hear the tail end of Broderick's talking to hear. Jen's is always really, really interesting. And I was glad to hear some of the references to other papers. Um, so yeah, what I'm going to be doing today is I'm going to be giving a talk in two parts. Um, the first is kind of a reflective discussion of um, some of the feelings that I feel um, in doing research for a book that I'm just about finishing called The New Spirit of Performance, which is kind of like an economic history of West German theater in the 1960s and 70s. Um, and then in the second part of my presentation, I'm going to offer a case study that kind of walks you through a small part of my research process. Um, so it's kind of an unconventional talk in that way, um, but I hope it's kind of, um, I hope it illustrates some of the reflections that I start with. I hope the case study kind of illustrates that. Um, so I'm going to be talking about two types of difficulties that feelings present to me when I'm doing research for this book. Um, and the first challenge that feelings have presented to my research has to do with uh, my own feelings about um, a particular playwright, a particular play um, that I feel like I'm supposed to write about if I'm writing a history of West German theater in the 1960s, but who I really don't feel like writing about. Um, and that is Peter Hanke. Um, and the play is Publikums Beschimpfung, or um, the translation often in English is offending the audience. So why don't I usually feel like writing about him? That's because everyone has written about him. There's just so much on him and on this play in particular that it's hard to find something new to say. Okay? Um, but also, part of the aim of my project is really to kind of widen the history of West German theater, okay, to include not just macho, brash, white men like Peter Hanka, but um, queer performers, immigrant artists, and so forth. Um, so it became kind of like a challenge to me as I was writing my PhD to find a way to not mention Peter Hanka in a history. Don't tell my PhD committee that I did that, although I think that they probably suspected that. Um, but so the other reason why I kind of feel like I don't really want to write about Peter Hanka is like, his politics are just like strange. If you know anything about him, he's seen as like some really aesthetically radical artist, but he was actually really, really kind of conservative politically in the 60s and 70s. And since he's recently, he's caused a lot of controversies um, for various apologies um, for Slobodan Milosevic, whose funeral he spoke at. Um, so there's lots of weird things that kind of come up when we talk about Peter Hanga. None of those differences should prevent me, political differences should prevent me from writing about him, but nonetheless they kind of don't make me feel more inclined to do so in any case. Um, and yet as I've been kind of writing the book for, as I've been revising my PhD into the book, I have decided for various reasons to talk about Hanka. In fact, the first chapter is about him and offending the audience, and yet you will soon find out I found a very clever way to talk about the play, but actually not talk about it. So you'll soon see, you're on the edge of your seats, I hope. Um, so the other way the feelings enter into what I want to discuss today comes from the fact that what, in, what I study in my book are, to a certain extent, feelings. 
feelings, okay? But not feelings as such, but rather what gets to called what, what sometimes gets called structures of feeling, which is a term that's coined by Raymond Williams. Has anyone already talked about this today? Fantastic, great, okay, cool. Okay, so perhaps due to its alluring vagueness, the term structure of feeling has been used in many different ways. For me, it offers a way, I don't know why I have this big quote, I'm not gonna be reading it, um, but for me, it offers a way for a historian to account for how feelings have historical force, perhaps akin to broader economic and political structures. But the idea of a structure of feeling also requires me to address how feelings cannot be thought of as independent from or outside of the social material conditions from which they exist. And so the specific kinds of feelings I want to study today are those feelings that theater audiences feel when they begin to be treated like customers and begin to conceive of themselves as not just audiences for a play, but as customers of a service. So part of what... I want to do today is to identify what it feels to be a customer, okay? while also noting how customer feelings are themselves a very historically specific phenomena that I argue are really, really recent. The term's been around for a long time, but what we think of as customers, I think, is really um, within just the past few decades. Okay? Um, and I think that these, this histor historical specificity of the, cus of the customer indexes all sorts of structural shifts in the global division of labor, service industries, gender, and corporate management. And one thing I'm interested in is how theater scholars have been really, really attuned to thinking about audiences as spectators, as consumers, as participants, and the like, yet when you actually get down to it, there's surprisingly little attention that gets paid to the idea of audiences as customers. Um, especially how that's transformed in recent decades. Baz Kirsch has some really good writing on this, but the rest, there's not that much, which is kind of surprising to me. Um, but for me, to be a customer is all about the management of feelings. The feelings that we associate with being a customer resonate, of course, with feelings we associate with theater going in general. Um, uh, it entails feelings of fulfillment and enchantment, but also, and this is mostly like what I feel when I go to the theater oftentimes, is dissatisfaction and disappointment, um, all of which stem from or lead to empowerment or action. What distinguishes these feelings as specifically ones felt by customers, though, is their direct or thinly mediated connection to economic relations. A spectator's feeling of disappointment may lead to downcast eyes, whereas a customer's unmet expectations may lead them to demand their money back. But my interest is not actually making claims about how people actually felt in the 1960s in West Germany. Instead, I draw on Williams' idea of the structure of feeling for, for the purposes of studying the conditions of possibility for such kinds of feelings to come into existence in the first place, and in this case, in and around the 1960s. The conditions that gave rise to customer relations, I argue, had something to do with the profound reorganization of social and economic life that we now associate with deindustrialization and the emergence of so-called late or really, really late capitalism, and which required new modes of feeling along with new values, norms, and so forth. We know this argument, I imagine. So when and what follows I talk about the feelings audiences felt when watching the premiere production of Offending the Audience, I'm not interested in saying what people actually felt. I can't really prove that. Instead, I'm hypothesizing what, that what they felt had something to do with broader structural transformations that included the introduction of the customer as a key facet to the organization, reorganization of capital and of theater, by the way. So now I want to turn to a um, specific case study to try to show how I've used this idea of customer feelings and the structure of feeling as a way to address a very specific research process. 
Um, and, the and the research question I have is this. What is it that caused audiences to react in the way that they did to the June 1966 premiere of Offending the Audience? Hanukkah was just 23 when Offending the Audience premiered um, in Frankfurt at the Experimenta Festival, directed by Klaus Peimann. It also featured work by Beckett, the Berliner Ensemble, and a bunch of Flexus artists. Um, the play was directed by Klaus Peimann, um, and it was not initially written as a play, but as a pamphlet. The Hanukkah quickly realized that the best place to issue a tirade against theater would be within the theater itself, so he made it into a play. So Offending the Audience consists of about an hour's worth of material that systematically derides key aspects of what was then understood to be dramatic theater. Assumptions about plot and character, time and space, and most notably, the relationship between performers and audiences. The play includes no characters, no line designations, and it famously concludes with a litany of compliments and insults directed toward an imagined audience. I could read them, but then I would be talking about Peter Hanka's play, so I'm not going to read them, okay? Um, Paimon directed the play um, on an unadorned stage with four performers who often spoke in sync, delivering lines all around the theater. Front stage, backstage, from the stalls, from the balcony, from the prompter's box, and even at one point while climbing or seeming to climb the stage curtains. These are just some images of that premiere production. Sorry, these are taken from stills from the video, so they're kind of blurry. Um, the production today is less remembered for its innovative staging, which I actually quite admire, than the audience's response to it. From the very start, performers were met with disruptions, laughing, whistling, jeering, heckling, clapping, stomping, and more continued throughout the production. And the uproar reached its peak halfway through the performance when a small group of audience members, um, goaded into coming onto the stage, unexpectedly took up the offer. And this led to a scuffle, and with Paimon in the audience, the actors actually physically removing the people from the stage. Um, there's a, just a quick video, if it works. Nope, that's fine. You can watch it on YouTube. I can send it around, okay? Um, much was and has been said about this production and the audience's reaction. Hanga's play remains among the most casually referenced by theater scholars. It comes up in almost any book that has anything to do with audiences and is often, without much explanation, pointed to as marking a watershed in how audiences conceive of themselves in theater. I find many things bemusing in how offending the audience has and continues to be discussed. Most notable is the fact that Hanka gets primary credit for arousing the feelings that led to the uproar. In some writings on the production, the sense one gets is of this brilliant Hanka acting like a master psychologist, just manipulating the emotions of audiences with ease. I want to provide a different take on the uproar. I want to suggest that the audience reaction to the play was a result not just of the brilliance of Peter Hanka, Sorry, it sounds really bitter. Um, but I want to argue that the reaction to the performance, it didn't sound as bitter when I was writing it, um, to the performance had something that, the reaction to the performance had something to do with a broader transformation in the structure of feeling of theater audiences at the time, which is marked not so much by the emancipation of the spectator as by the empowerment of the customer. As such, it might reveal more than just a shifting relation between performance and spectator, but also the shifting economic relation between producers and consumers at that time. So we know a whole lot about the premiere production of Offending the Audience, and much of what we know comes from the film recording of it, which was broadcast on television several months after the premiere. This fact raises another question for me that I think is actually more interesting than the one I posed earlier. How did audiences feel about the television cameras in the theater? 
To answer this question, one needs to know that the recording we have, in which you can now watch on YouTube, is not actually of the first production or the first performance of Offending the Audience, as many scholars assume. The first performance was on June 8, 1996. The recording was, was of the second performance, a day later on June 9th. This is really important to know because the audience response to the performance on June 8th was much more subdued than the performance on June 9th. There were some laughs and heckling and the show notes revealed two people walked out, but the first unrecorded performance in no way compared to the following night's uproar. What could be said to account for the difference in reaction? I want to suggest it had something to do with these television cameras. And the reason I say this comes from something that happened before the performance even began, and which the cameras actually captured. So the audience takes their seats, and a spokesperson for the performance festival comes out from behind thick curtains. He apologizes to the audience for not early informing them that the performance will be recorded for television by a crew from the station ZAF. He points out to them the large cameras and cables and thanks everyone for their patience, at which point someone yells, Fernseher raus, or television out. People laugh and the festival representative falters a bit, but he continues to emphasize that every effort has been made to keep the inconvenience to a minimum. Someone else roars again, louder this time, Fernseher raus. This elicits more laughter and applause. The speaker continues with his apologies, but is repeatedly interrupted. And here's him, oh, it's not, you can't really see it, but that's him being all sheepish. Um, the speaker continues with his apologies, but continues to be erupted. One person wants to know why they do not record another performance, while someone else demands to know whether they can get their money back. And I should say, all those who are speaking and yelling out seem to be men, which says something important about the gendered relations of customers in the 60s, I think. Um, meanwhile, the audience becomes increasingly rowdy, whistling and heckling the speaker, who becomes increasingly unnerved. Um, he tries to continue to talk. He is again interrupted by spect spectators asking for their money back, as someone else demands again, television out, and he responds, it's just not possible. More shouts come from the audience, and another per person suggests to everyone there, what if we all just ask for our money back? The speaker implores the audience to remain calm, to which the audience just laughs. He continues to plead with the audience before finally giving up. He moves back to the part in the curtain, gives the audience one last pitiful look, which this shows, but you can't really see it, before moving swiftly behind the curtain. The audience roars and claps. We hear some doors slam as several people leave. I think it's fair to say that this opening uproar could have helped to prime the audience and their uproar during the actual performance. This is not to deny the power of Honka's provocation, although I do think it's overstated, but rather it suggests that the presence of television cameras affected the audience. But why would the audience have reacted so strongly to the presence of some television cameras in the theater? Part of the reason for the strong audience reaction on this night, I think, has to do with the fact that in 1966, West German theater was in a full-on crisis. This is not just a crisis of aesthetics, but was first and foremost an economic crisis. And one of the chief culprits blamed for the crisis was television. The theater crisis had several features. First, ticket sales nationally had been plummeting. They dropped um, in 1956 and 1957 until the middle of the 1960s. Attendance nationally remained strong and consistent with 20 million tickets sold annually, and major houses filled an average of 90% of their seats. 
Um, in the mid-1960s, however, ticket sales fell sharply, first by a million in 1966 alone, and then steadily dropped to 17 million by the decades and a 15% increase in just a couple of years. Many people blamed the flagging demand for theater on the rise of television. In 1956, only four out of 100 homes had a TV in West Germany. By the late 1970s, nearly 100% did. Um, and in the mid-1960s alone, the number of people watching TV in their leisure time doubled. In addition to shrinking audiences, theater also faced skyrocketing costs. And these costs had to do specifically with the rising price of theatrical labor. Within the overall budget of West German theater in the 65 and 66 season, the material cost of running theaters, costumes, sets, scenery, construction, etc., sat right at 25% or a little bit above. The main costs, however, mounting to over 65% were labor costs, with two-thirds of these, or 40% of total costs, being artistic personnel. I hope you're keeping track. Um, as the decade wore on, overall costs continued to climb, and the proportion of labor to capital costs continued to skew, with labor costs rising to 80% of budgets in the 1970s. The shifting proportion of labor to capital costs defies Marx's, Karl Marx's theory of the growing technical composition of capital, which holds that relative costs shift from labor to fixed capital over time as the production process becomes more efficient thanks to labor-saving technologies. Marx, of course, was not thinking of, of the peculiarity of theater, an industry whose budgets cannot benefit as easily as other industries from technological innovations. This odd fact of theater, that is, its reliance on the living labor of live performance, was explained in 1966 by the American economists William Baumol and William Bolt, William Baumol and Bowen, um, William Bowen, who posited theater as exemplary of the productivity lag inherent to service-heavy industries. Since an industry like theater cannot expel labor by replacing workers with machines, or at least as easily as other industries can, labor costs continue to rise relative to fixed capital in a given society. Of course, in the late 60s, people who criticized television for posing a threat to theater didn't read Baumol and Bowen or just ignored them, and they then just blamed television for the rising labor costs, arguing that competition with TV for directors, writers, and performers drove up wages within the theater. Television certainly drew audiences away from theater, but it's doubtful that television can be singularly blamed for pushing up labor costs. What remains key, however, is how widely and publicly television was blamed for West Germany's theater crisis. Um, and lots of magazines, especially theater magazines, ran lots of features about this. And it's reasonable to assume that some of those attending an experimental theater festival, especially one of such prominence as Experimenta, would head into offending the audience with some knowledge of this situation. Moreover, they also would likely have known that the leading solution posed at the time to address the crisis was to raise ticket prices, which, thanks to generous government subsidies, had barely budged in almost a decade. All of this allows us to view one of the most infamous theater uproars of the post-war period in something of a new light, I think. It suggests that the uproar over offending the audience had something to do with the economic crisis facing theater, specifically the prospect of rising ticket prices, a major cause of which was, was presumed to be television. This is, and I'm coming to my conclusion. This is all to say that the feelings prompting some of those to act up during Hanka's play may not have stemmed solely from the insults directed to them as a theater audience, and may have also stemmed as well from feelings engendered by the recognition, however vague, of economic conditions relating to theater. 
In the larger chapter from which this comes, I connect the uproar over the production to two broader shifts ongoing in West Germany at the time, which I don't have time to get into, but which are really important for my argument, actually. Um, both of which center on efforts to get people to conceive of themselves and others as customers. One of these was a concerted effort directed at developing customer service within the subsidized German theater system. As a way to bring more people into the theater, new attention was given to things like investment in advertising, front of house services, branding, additional purchasing opportunities, and lobby, etc. And then the other thing that I connect this uproar with offending the audience audience too, were developments outside of the theater, specifically the customer service revolution that took place within West German businesses, and kind of in the late 60s, but really in the late, in the 70s, in which the quote, customer is king, um, reigned supreme, that idea. Um, so as service was increasingly oriented to, toward goals like satisfaction and empowering customers and improving choice, um, we start to see all this discussion of um, people not as patrons or as clients or as consumers, but as customers. And we see something very, very similar happening in the theater as well. In fact, I argue that in some ways, the theater as a service heavy industry um, kind of was something like a flagship for these broader changes. And in some cases, provides some models for business management theorists. But I won't go into that right now. And I'll hand it over to Mike. Thank you. Um, like Claire earlier today, I also couldn't say no to Finton when he asked me if I would present a couple days ago. So what I'd like to share with you today is a kind of repurposed presentation from a, another moment, and also a bit of a video of a project that I worked on last summer that will hopefully offer some opportunity to reflect on some of the feelings that I had around it. <laughs> okay. Living in Nikolaevka is like living on Mars. At least that's how it's described by one of the teenage protagonists at the center of the 2015 documentary play, My Nikolaevka. We don't know anything about the world, except what we see online, the speaker continues. And to see something online just isn't the same as seeing it with your own eyes. Staged inside the local school, which was severely damaged in the war only nine months before the play's premiere, My Nikolaevka features 13 teenagers who speak with striking sincerity about their personal experiences of love, loss, and life during war. In the summer of 2014, conflict erupted in this small city in Donetsk region when the Ukrainian army clashed with Russian-backed separatists seeking to expand their control of Ukrainian territory. After four days of heavy shelling, Nikolaevka was secured by Ukrainian forces and the rebels began to retreat. Many of the stories shared by the protagonists on stage recall the details of those four days when the city was caught between two opposing forces. Other stories inadvertently reveal the lingering effects of the war on the speakers' day-to-day -day lives. Some of the other performers in the play cast the war in a peripheral role, focusing instead on intimate details about their hopes for the future and their regrets about the past. At one point in the play, 14-year-old Vladislav Shokin speaks to the audience as if to a friend 
as he recalls one time when he found a small bug in a bunch of grapes and he carried it, in, he carried it to the window to fly away. I don't know why, Shokin says. I just didn't want to kill it. And that made me think, how could I kill a person if I can't even kill a bug? I've stopped asking myself questions like that, he claims. I try not to think about the war anymore. Created in collaboration with Ukrainian playwright Natalia Varezhbit and German director Georg Genot, My Nikolaevka was the first production premiered by Ukraine's only dedicated documentary theater collective, the Theater of Displaced People. The company was founded in 2015 in direct response to the 1.7 million people who've been forced to leave their homes as a result of the ongoing military conflict in the east of the country, an undeclared war that has killed over 10,000 people since 2014. In the past three years, the Theater of Displaced People has produced dozens of works in which internal refugees, children's soldier, children, soldiers, journalists, artists, and activists speak their own stories on stage. My current research analyzes the political, ethical, and aesthetic balances of the company's work within its contemporary Ukrainian context, and also considers its relevance to artists and activists working in conflict zones across the globe. It adopts an ethnographic approach that entails a significant amount of time in the field, conducting interviews and observing rehearsals and performances. In this way, my research aims to track the company's work in real time, as the artists and participants involved react rapidly to the political and social changes unfolding around them. In my presentation today, I'd like to give you a brief sense of the company's work, before speaking more specifically about my own involvement with the group as a researcher, a volunteer, and a theater maker. And lastly, I'd like to share with you some ethical questions that have arisen for me over the course of this past year as I've grown more involved and more invested in the group's activities. The multilingual pluralistic population of 21st century Ukraine is regularly misrepresented by mainstream media, politicians, and policymakers to create a simplified narrative of Ukraine as a divided country, pitting East against West. As academics and opposition journalists have discussed, this reduced reading of Ukraine's national identities serves to create a diversion, a marketable narrative that obscures the corrupt practices the country's network of power elites has been engaged in since well before the war in the East began. Common cultural stereotypes about Russian-speaking Soviet loyalists and Ukrainian-speaking Euro enthusiasts have become even more divisive as a result of the war. Furthermore, the propaganda disseminated on both sides of the front lines leads to increased resentment and violence across the country. The Theater of Displaced People aims to dispel these stereotypes, counteract propaganda, and bring seemingly disparate groups of people into dialogue with one another. For example, the company's ongoing project entitled Children and Soldiers saw members of the group travel to four Ukrainian-controlled frontline cities where soldiers have been stationed for the past three and a half years. In their previous visits to the region, the theater's directors noticed that local residents were often afraid of the soldiers who were living in their towns, and many of the soldiers suspected the locals to be separatist sympathizers. Working together with professional playwrights and directors, the soldiers and students created a documentary play in which they recounted their experiences of the war and performed their stories for the public at the end of the week. Following their week of work together uh, in the eastern city of Papasna, playwright Natalia Varezhbit recalls speaking to one of the soldiers who participated in the project. According to the playwright, this soldier told the group how, before his involvement in the play, he used to look across at the block of flats opposite the checkpoint where he worked. 
He noticed that the light was always on in one window on the ninth floor, and he was sure that someone was inside watching him with binoculars. Since his work with theater of displaced people, however, this soldier learned that that ninth floor window belongs to Lyosha from the school, and below his window is Marina's. Such a statement of recognition and personal connection speaks directly to the impact that the work with theater of displaced people has had for the group's participants. A group that, according to the newspaper Ukrainian Pravda, has, quote, done more to facilitate dialogue between East and West than all government programs combined. At a moment of extreme uncertainty for Ukraine particularly, and for Eastern Europe more broadly, it has become more important than ever for artists and activists to find ways for people whose lives have been touched by war to share their experiences with one another and to know that someone is listening. The reciprocal act of both speaking and hearing these testimonies is essential to the efficacy of all the theater of displaced people projects. By inviting individuals to share their stories, the group engages participants in an important process of self-definition. The practice of speaking and listening to people's experiences of war and displacement offers new agency to those involved. Participants gain the opportunity to tell their own stories, to defy common stereotypes, and in this way, learn to see themselves and each other as individuals. In this sense, the work taking place at the Theater of Displaced People resembles international instances of applied theater practice in conflict zones. As James Thompson, James Thompson describes in his 2006 book, Digging Up Stories, Applied Theater Performance and War, one use of theater in places of crisis can be to, quote, create safe zones, places apart where participants feel comfortable expressing themselves. The creation of safe spaces is undoubtedly an important element of the Theater of Displaced People's work. The process of self-realization their work encourages and inspires in the Ukrainian context is not dissimilar to the practices Nandita Dinesh describes in her 2016 study, Theater and War Notes from the Field. As I continue my work analyzing the mechanics of the Theater of Displaced People's repertoire, I'll contextualize their practice within these established studies of applied theater in conflict zones. Additionally, my research seeks to reveal what is unique about the work taking place at the Theater of Displaced People. In this sense, it's important to note that the artists at the heart of the Theater of Displaced People Collective don't come from a background of Western theater education and therefore don't situate their work in relationship to an established history of applied theater practice as it's come to be known in academic and artistic circles in the UK and the US. The personal nature of the stories told on stage in the plays and the non-illusory style of performance their participants adopt has more in common with the style of performance that's developed as a distinct characteristic of documentary theater as it's practiced in Russia and other post-socialist countries. As I've illustrated in my previous research on documentary theater practice in 21st century Russia, documentary theater has proven particularly generative in the region as a result of how the form speaks to four core cultural anxieties in contemporary Russian and Eastern European culture. These anxieties include tensions around the veracity of documents, the sincerity of testimony, the performance of justice, and the region's fraught relationship to its 20th century past. In response to these four core cultural anxieties, Russian and Ukrainian documentary theater artists have developed a specific style of non-illusory performance that differentiates the practice from how it's commonly performed in the Anglophone context. Through extended study of the Theater of Displaced People repertoire and detailed analysis of the role the company plays for the communities it serves, 
My research explores the interdependent relationships between identity, displacement, and citizenship in Ukraine. It investigates how, in the 21st century Ukrainian context, documentary theater constitutes an important form of political engagement through which people are offered new agency in the process of creating their own cultural narratives and renegotiating their relationships to civil society. In this way, my research seeks to illustrate how the theater of displaced people works not only on the front lines of Ukraine's cultural conflicts, but also at the forefront of 21st century political theater practice. These were among the dynamics I had the opportunity to witness firsthand during my five months of field research from February to July this past year. In addition to watching rehearsals and performances and conducting interviews with the directors and performers at the heart of the group, I had the opportunity to participate in several of the company's projects as a volunteer, a fundraiser, and a co-creator. One of those projects involved traveling to Nikolaevka together with director Georg Genot and Ukrainian documentary photographer Anastasia Vlasova. Over the course of a week and a half, uh, we worked with a group of 10 high school students to create a video installation that we called what my mom and dad should never know. And I'd like to show you a little bit of the video now. It's in Russian without subtitles, so I'll just play a bit and then tell you a little bit about how, how we made it. Well, maybe there is no sound. Okay, well, um, we worked with the students on these uh, video portraits. And what you can't hear is the voiceover of her story that she's speaking. Um, the story in this case is about uh, how her brother was, had been beaten up by a gang in town and how there's kind of gang violence and it's, a, it's a, something that everybody knows about but nobody speaks about. Um, another one of the stories includes one of the girls talking about a, an old disused cinema in town that has been kind of closed down and boarded up since, for as long as she can remember. It has been that way for 15 years. And so we decided, in relation to that story, to project the video installation on the doors of the cinema. It was in July, so it was warm enough to do that. And uh, we set up about 50 chairs. We did absolutely no advertising and over 100 people came at 9 p.m. on a Wednesday night to watch this uh, video installation projected on the doors of the old cinema. It was um, a really incredible process to be a part of. I'd been following the company's work for some time. I'd been in Ukraine already for four months, and this was the first time that I really was involved in the process of creating one of their shows or one of their projects. In that process, um, I learned that, unsurprisingly, the artists who are involved in this group are befriending the kids who are involved, right? It's not only a process of creating this show, it's also a process of hanging out and spending time together. Uh, and so I also was welcomed into that circle, and that um, leads me to reflect on some of the difficult feelings that we've talked about today. So I would say, in terms of, of how I've sort of been reflecting on those feelings, in, in a way, this presentation is an opportunity to reflect on them because I, I've sort of seen it coming, like I know I need to think about these things and I haven't necessarily done it yet. I think that some of those feelings can be broken down into three categories. 
One of the categories is connected to what Claire was speaking about in her presentation today, which is how these stories, particularly the stories about war, um, are shifting and converting when I bring them into my own academic research. So what does it mean for me to go to Nikolaevka and to uh, work with kids in Ukraine, to listen to their experiences, to befriend them in that way, and then take those stories and bring them back here uh, and, and share them with you, right? So those are, that's kind of one set of difficult feelings that I have had around this project. The second set of difficult feelings I've had around this project, I would say, connect more to what David was speaking about in his presentation today about uh, what kinds of friendships are appropriate when you're working with kids. And for me, those um, feelings have only become difficult since I left. Of course, when I was in Ukraine and I was working with kids, I had a lot of feelings. I didn't necessarily experience them to be especially difficult, but now that I'm here in London and I am uh, you know, in, involved in, in Facebook correspondence with kids who are living you know, very close, if not in a war zone, I, I find those friendships, those feelings more difficult than I had anticipated. And um, the last set of questions relates so closely to what Anna really eloquently articulated this morning. Um, and I think the major question for me about this research is, in Anna's words, to figure out how I can hold these stories like a tender companion in order to become the listener that they are calling me to be. That's the cinema, by the way. <laughs>